It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. And yes, with the holidays coming, you can also gift it. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 284, and today we are talking about books being released on November 3rd, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Danica Ellis, and we're coming to you from BookRiot.com. Danica, hello! Hello! It is, well, when this airs, it will be election day. I know, it's... It's never felt like a bigger gap between when they're recording and when it's actually going to be listened yeah. to. I feel like we're in different years. Yeah, it's it's wild. We were talking before the show about how there are actually a lot more titles, like big titles out at this time of year than they normally would have during an election time uh, because of the pandemic. Publishers pushed a lot of their titles, but... It was still, I, we were agreed that it was still uh, hard pickings. Is that, is that a thing? That makes me sound like yeah. a banjo. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, it could just be me. I mean, it could, you know, taste is, you know, subjective. But, you know, I, I really want to only get behind things that I love because I want people mm-hmm. to, you know, you can hear it in my voice when I'm, in, when I'm enthused about something. And I read a lot of books <laughs> for this week that I was like, uh-uh. No, and that doesn't mean they're not for other people, but it was really hard this week picking things. Yeah. But I do have a few great books. You have a few great books. Yeah, yeah. I had some uh, some books I had to jump ship from in the first chapters, but eventually found some really good ones. We're going to talk about them as soon as we hear from our first sponsor. It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. And yes, with the holidays coming, you can also gift it. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. Okay, my first pick today is White Ivy by Susie Yang. It's an intense debut novel about a young woman named Ivy. She is a Chinese-American, and as she will tell you, she's also a liar and a thief. But she says that because she looks so sweet and innocent, and she looks so young even when she gets older, that no one believes it of her, and it makes it very easy for her to manipulate people and to thieve. And she goes back and starts explaining, like, why this is. 
When Ivy was born, her parents lived in China, and they decided to move to America to make more money, but they didn't have enough money for everyone to go over, so they left Ivy behind with her grandmother. And she spends the first five years of her life growing up in China with her grandmother, and then suddenly... Her parents are like, okay, it's time to send Ivy to America. Now she's five years old. She doesn't even know them. She's never seen them because she doesn't remember from when she was a baby. And here are these strangers at the airport to pick her up with this screaming baby. And it's very upsetting for her. And her parents are very, they're not affectionate. You know, her grandmother was like her best friend and she was very sweet to her and she got along with her. And now all of a sudden she's all like pretty much all by herself because with these strangers. And now she grows up in Massachusetts with her parents and her brother. She goes to an almost all-white school. She desperately wants to fit in. She talks about how she wishes that she was blonde and blue-eyed, and she fit in with the rest of the kids. Um, Her parents have very strict expectations of her. They expect her to behave a certain way. From, like, a very young age, they're telling her, you know, school is the most important thing, and that she is going to be a doctor, not, like, asking her if she wants to be a doctor, but, like, telling her that she's going to be a doctor. There's a character later on in the book who mentions... He remembers the first time he saw her when she moved to their school because she was like 10 years old and they said, you know, what do you want to... The teacher asked, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she said, I want to have a PhD. And he was like, I didn't even know what a PhD was. And her parents were also very judgmental. They, you know, because they have little, I think they judge other people for their choices. They pass a lot of judgment on women who are not married or women who have been divorced. So Ivy's growing up with this, and it's having an effect on her, whether she realizes it or not. And she starts stealing little things, like from the drugstore and from Kmart. Uh, And she also develops this huge crush on this boy in her middle school named Gideon. And at the same time, she befriends the neighbor, her new neighbor, whose name is Rue. He is a young man living with his single mother, which, of course, Ivy's mother completely disapproves of, you know, an, uh, an unmarried woman or a divorced woman, and she has horrible things to say about his mother. But they are thick as thieves, uh, and thieves, literally. They steal things together, and they get along really well. And then one day, this boy Gideon that Ivy has a crush on invites her to a birthday party. And she's so excited, but she knows that her parents will never let her go because she's not allowed to talk about boys. You know, her mother doesn't let her think about boys. Her mother is very, very strict. There is physical abuse in this book, so a heads up for that. Like, her mother slaps her children a lot. And so she knows that her mother will never let her go to this party. So she, like, lies about where she's going to be, and her parents find out, and she is punished for it. She's, like, 14 at this point, and... Part of her punishment is now she's going to be sent to stay in China for the summer with her mother's relatives. Before that happens, she starts acting out even more. And then she has a falling out with Rue. And then she goes to China. When she comes back from China, she finds out her parents have moved. Like, they're not even, like, they didn't even tell her they're not even living in Massachusetts anymore. Now they're in New Jersey. And her father uh, can't get a job anymore. And they all have to take uh, factory jobs. And it's a really hard time for her. And she's just so angry and cannot wait to get out. And then jumps to the future when Ivy is a teacher. She's now teaching first grade. And she runs into Sylvia, who is Gideon's sister. Now, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but Gideon's family is like the richest family in town. They have summer homes and yachts and just all the fanciest stuff that you can have. And Sylvia's like, oh, you know, I remember you and I'm having brunch with Gideon tomorrow. You should come along. You know, and Gideon's single, like wink, wink. Like she thinks Ivy is really cute. And so she goes to brunch and she ends up becoming a part of Gideon's life and they begin dating. And now Ivy is going broke. She's maxing out her credit cards, trying to keep up with like 
the lavish lifestyle that Gideon and his friends have. They go out for brunch and it costs $2,000 and they go skiing and, you know, she has to get like last minute tickets and she's like not eating because she doesn't have any money because she desperately wants to fit in. And, and they seem to love her and his parents seem to love her and she goes to stay at their summer house for a week. And everything is going really, really well until Sylvia shows up with her boyfriend and surprise, it's Rue from when she was young in school. And now she's worried that Rue is going to ruin everything. They can't seem to get along like right off the bat. Like he starts being like, I remember when Ivy used to steal and she's like, oh, so hey, you know, uh, how about that other thing? And like keeps changing the subject and she thinks he has it out for her and just everything starts going wrong now. She's worried that Gideon will find out that... She used to be a thief, and she has some other secrets that she's keeping. And then they bring a stray cat into the house, and she has an allergic outbreak, and everything is going wrong. So now, what is going to happen? Is Gideon going to find out about Ivy's old life and her past with Rue? Is, you know, Rue going to go away? I don't want to give away anymore. Ivy is a very complicated character. I liked her, but you also don't like her. I mean, she herself takes on some of her mother's opinions and she can be very judgmental she's not a great person she's a thief you know she's a liar but at the same time i also felt a lot of sympathy towards her because of the way that she was raised the book is a bit like the talented mr ripley Uh, she manipulates people she's a chameleon and it's like what will she do you know when her world is threatened so the movie rights to this i believe have already been sold I think like a few months ago before it came out. So that is White Ivy, and it is the debut novel by Susie Yang. That sounds so interesting. And also, I want to have $2,000 brunch just one time. Not, <laughs> not greedy. Just I once. <laughs> Can you imagine? You just don't even flinch at the bill. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't even know what that would look like. Yeah. But speaking of food, my first pick is Butter Honey Pig Bread by Francesca Equiesi. I loved this book, and it was actually long listed for the Giller Prize, and it is published by my favorite publisher, Arsenal Pulp Press, so that always makes me more interested. It's a book about three Nigerian women, Kimbira Nachi and her twin daughters, Taye and Kayende. I'm going to start off with some trigger warnings because this does deal with some difficult subject matter that I'm going to mention. So trigger warning for suicide and suicide ideation, miscarriage and child death, as well as rape and child sexual abuse. So this is split into four books, which you might have guessed are titled Butter, Honey, Pig, and Bread. In the first book, we're introduced to Kimbiranachi. She is an obanje, which is an Igbo term for spirits who are said to plague a mother by repeatedly being born and dying early. She finds being alive and being bound to a body and time boring, and it makes her restless. She can hear her kin all around her, always calling her back to this world of spirits. So for her, dying is a simple thing. After she sees how much her mother is tortured by her miscarriages and early deaths, though, Kambiranachi decides to stick with life, much to her kin's disapproval. We then jump to Taye and Kayende visiting their mother as adults. It's been a long time since the sisters spoke to each other, and the three of them have drifted apart due to an unnamed bad thing that happened. Pretty early on, we find out that this bad thing was the rape of Kayende as a child while her sister stayed silent under the bed. 
They have never openly talked about this, and it's driven a wedge between them. The whole story spirals around this point, and we see their lives before and after out of sequence. Anytime a book is not told chronologically, I have no idea how the author managed to have it make sense, but this flows beautifully. I hardly noticed that it was jumping around in time because it always seems like a natural transition. We follow each of their perspectives, and what I love about this book is that they all feel realistic and deeply flawed. Kimbira Nachi struggles with life. We see her grow up and how difficult it was for her not to return to her kin. Her daughter describes her as beautiful in an impossible way, a delicate thing, too soft for this world. She loves her children, but she falls into a deep depression after her husband, their father, dies and is unable to take care of them or herself. Taye and Kayende define themselves in opposition to each other. Kayende feels inferior, like Taye is the perfect twin, and she is made up of the cast-offs, especially because Taye is the thinner twin. Despite having a husband and being successful, she always feels like she's in the shadow of her twin. Taye feels constantly rejected by Kayende, and as a child, she relied on her sister to speak for her. She feels lost in the world, overcome by her voracious appetite, both for food and sex. She is constantly thinking about the women that she's been with, but none of them seem to last. One of her exes mailed a box of Taye's letters to Kayende, except that Taye never meant to actually send those letters. When they meet again, she avoids talking about the letters or acknowledging how painful she's found their separation. This is an exploration of these flawed people and their complicated, layered relationships with each other. Although it deals with difficult subject matter, it feels hopeful. There are plenty of fractured relationships here, but there are also supportive, kind, gentle relationships with healthy communication that made me swoon. There's also, unsurprisingly, a food theme. One of the twins is a chef, and each of the foods in the title shows up repeatedly with slightly different meanings. A beehive is a life-altering outing, a secret indulgence, or a staple of the household. Characters cook for each other when they don't have the words to talk to each other. So I highly recommend this for fans of literary fiction, queer books, food writing, and really anyone who wants a good story. If you're on the fence, there's a video on YouTube from 20 Summers with the author reading excerpts, and it's about 45 minutes long. So check that out, and I'm sure you'll be hooked. And that's Butter Honey Pig Bread by Francesca Equayesi. I really wanted to read that one. But you put it down before me. I snatched it up. (laughs) I'm going to read it sometime. We get a bit of a break. Everyone except Vanessa gets a break. Well, I mean, I have to read (laughs) the books, but because in December we do like the best of show, it's kind of like a little break to read some things Mm -hmm. that we want to read, except for when Vanessa and I do the uh, best of December show. Poor Vanessa. She drew the short straw this time. (laughs) Someone has to. Yeah. So now get ready. You're probably going to have to stop me. First of all, I would like to apologize in advance. I'm going to tell you about a book that doesn't come out until next week. However, I've been waiting for a year to talk about this book. And then a few weeks ago, I found out that they are a sponsor of next week's show, which means that I am not allowed to endorse it on that episode. And I was like shaking my fists in the air. I was just like, no. I mean, I'm very excited that they're a sponsor of the show because I love it so much, but I have to talk about it. So I'm going to talk about it now. And I'm really excited about it. So I could talk about it for another 45 minutes. So let's get to it, shall we? 
My next pick is We Keep the Dead Close, A Murder at Harvard and a Half Century of Silence by Becky Cooper. It is a nonfiction, true crime book. So before I start talking about it, I do want to say it is about a horrific murder. I am going to mention things pertaining to that, which could be upsetting. So if that's something that bothers you, uh, you're going to want to skip over this recommendation. That said, it is so good. I mean, like I said, I read it so long ago, and I've just been waiting to tell you about it. Uh, And here it is. So Becky Cooper, in 2009, she was a student at Harvard, and she was sitting around with some people outside having lunch or something or just like chatting or something like that. And one of the students is like, somebody tell us a story. And this other guy who was sitting there with them says, you want to hear a story? Okay. I heard that 40 years ago, one of the students at the school was murdered. She was having an affair with one of the professors and he, she was going to tell his wife. And so he murdered her and Harvard covered it up and he still teaches here today. And oh, yeah, there he, like, there he goes walking across the, the lawn. And Becky Cooper's like, I'm sorry, what? She's like, that can't possibly be true. And he's like, that's what I heard. Like, he killed this student and Harvard covered it up because they didn't want a scandal. And she can't stop thinking about this. She's like, this can't be real. He can't still be teaching here. This can't be a true thing. And so these are the, the facts of the case. In 1969, Jane Britton, who was a 23-year-old graduate student in Harvard's anthropology department, and also the daughter of Radcliffe uh, Vice President J. Boyd Britton, like Radcliffe University, used to be a separate part. She was murdered. She was found murdered in her bed, in her apartment. She worked, like I said, she worked for the anthropology department. There were some signs that maybe, like, there were some ritual things done pertaining to, like, an archaeological dig that she had been on. Um, There were rumors. But the most persistent rumor was that she was having an affair with her professor. And when she threatened to tell his wife, he killed her. Now, there was never any evidence You know, and like a lot of this was like people just saying and talking and gossiping and it was not a big deal. Like there were not a lot of articles in the paper and it was never solved. Like they never found out like what happened to her. You know, they're like, you know, and a year before that, someone else had been murdered in her building and Harvard was supposed to fix the locks on the apartment because Harvard owned the building. They were supposed to have the locks fixed on the doors and the locks weren't fixed. So like, was that something to do with it? And Cooper becomes obsessed with this case, like obsessed. She wants to know. She's like, it's a cold case. It's 40 years old now. And she wants to know what happens. And she spends the next 10 years of her life looking into this case. And it's amazing how many people that Jane Britton had in her life were kind of shady. It wasn't that there weren't enough suspects. It was that there were too many suspects, professors and assistants and that professor's wife and Jane's boyfriend, and the neighbors across the hall from Jane. I mean, in like, there was like a professor that she had who later on went on a hiking trip with another student and she disappeared. And he said that, oh, she fell off a cliff, but like they couldn't prove anything. And then there was another one who was suspected in another murder. I mean, it was so many shady people in her life. And not only that, but Cooper delves right into the rampant misogyny in the anthropology department, um, which is, like, still prevalent today. But she talks about how it was almost impossible for women to advance in this field. That there were professors who 
had uh, women students and wouldn't give them good grades if they wouldn't go to bed with them. They had, they, you know, they were jealous if uh, women did well in the field. Uh, there was one woman that she spoke to who had a professor who said he would give her an amazing uh, letter of recommendation to get this other job and she, or the scholarship. I can't remember which one it was. And she didn't get it. And she found out later that instead of writing a letter of recommendation, he sent this letter saying like all these horrible things about her. And the part that that just absolutely kills me. I mean, there's a lot of things about this book that make me go, what? The thing that kills me is that this man, this professor, was so conceited that he actually donated his papers to the university when he retired. And one of the papers found, you know, in this collection was this horrible letter that he wrote about this woman. And that is how she found out that, like, all these years later, she did not get the job because they went in a different direction. She didn't get the job because he said all these horrible things about her. I mean, and there's so many instances of this, like, because they write it down. These women who have these letters from professors who are like, um, I'm very disappointed that you decided to get married. I'm very disappointed that you decided to have a baby. I mean, it's unbelievable. You know, and so like, was Jane Britton, you know, a victim of this rampant sexism at the at the university? So now 10 years later, right, Becky Cooper worked on this for 10 years. She even went back to Harvard and sat in on classes with this professor who was suspected of killing Jane Britton because she thought maybe if she like studied him, she could just tell from looking at him. And so here's the thing, the thing that made me go, oh, at the very beginning of this book, she lays out the story of how, you know, she was sitting on the lawn and she heard the story and she was like, what? And, you know, she says, and then at the end of this chapter, she says, you know, this murder remained unsolved until now. And I was like, oh, 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 I have never read a book so fast. It is the best true crime book I've read in a long time where you find out what happened at the end. There are so many amazing true crime books out there, you know, like thinking like, uh, I'll be gone in the dark. Of course, we know what happened now, but like there are uh, lost girls where we don't know what happened. They're really well written, but you don't find out the, the outcome, like who who did it. And this in this book, you do find out at the very end who the killer is. And there was, like, so, there's so many other aspects. There's all this red tape. There is a cover-up. Like, Cooper kept trying to get all these documents so that she could do more research for her book, and they wouldn't give them to her. Uh, What I will say is that, basically, this case was solved because of Cooper's efforts to have those documents unsealed. Like, if it wasn't for her persistence, it might still be unsolved. It's so good. If you like true crime books, this is the big true crime book of the year, of, like, next year, although there is one coming next year that I can't wait to tell you about, too, but it's just amazing. So I'm going to stop talking about it because I could keep going and going and going and telling you about all the weird things that happen in this book. This is called We Keep the Dead Close, A Murder at Harvard and a Half Century of Silence by Becky Cooper. That is brutal and unbelievable i don't i don't know if i even want to read that even though it sounds amazing (laughs) you know what i just realized i'm really bad at math um because i kept saying 40 years later and i believe it was 50 years later it was 40 years since you heard the story but like now 50 years later the story the crime has been solved i know math good i think we've definitively proven that time doesn't exist anymore so (laughs) it's fine But, you know, maybe today you want to read about misogyny and murder or wait until next week. But maybe you want to read something really cute and happy. And if so, my next pick is what you want. 
And that is Homecoming Tales, 15 Inspiring Stories from Old Friends Senior Dog Sanctuary. So this is, as you might have guessed, an adorable little book featuring some of the dogs who found forever homes through Old Friends Senior Dog Sanctuary. If you're not familiar with it, Old Friends is a rescue in Mount Juliet, Tennessee that takes in senior dogs. They have a huge social media following on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter featuring their adorable old pups. You can even watch a live cam of the sanctuary. They have a documentary that came out this year called Seniors, a Dogumentary, and now they have this book, which would make a perfect gift because it has an introduction explaining old friends, and then it features profiles of 15 dogs that were taken in by them, all of which have found forever homes. This is illustrated with drawings of all the dogs featured and includes lots of fun facts and dog lover vocabulary like blep or sploot. So yes, it is very cute. If you have a low cute tolerance, then this is not for you. Last year, I read Rescue Road by Peter Zlutlin, and that was a really interesting and informative book, but it was also brutal. It went into detail of all the animal abuse that these dogs went through and what happened to dogs that weren't adopted. And this book, on the other hand, is all warm and fuzzy feelings. There are occasional mentions of what the dogs went through before they were taken in, but they are brief and not detailed. This is something you could definitely let a kid flip through and would probably make a great read for young dog lovers as well. I knew of old friends before this book, but reading it gave me a whole new appreciation for the work they do. They have 85 to 100 dogs at a time at Grandpa's Gardens with hundreds more in foster homes, with nearly 100 dogs on site, each with their own special diet and medicine. Just giving them breakfast takes two to three hours. One interesting thing about old friends is that they don't actually adopt out dogs. Instead, they put them in forever foster homes. The reason they do this is to make sure the dogs they take in will never go back to an unsafe situation. Legally, they still belong to the sanctuary, so if the fosters can't keep a dog, it goes back to them. Another amazing thing about old friends is that they have a full-time veterinarian on staff, and every foster gets a lifetime of free medical treatment which makes it a lot easier to adopt a senior dog when you know that you don't have to worry about medical bills. And this year, they are expanding with a new building that will be almost three times bigger than the building at Grandpa's Gardens, so they can help even more dogs. This is an amazing organization and a fun and super cute book. It would be obviously a great gift for dog lovers. It works as a coffee table book that you can just flip through and read one of the stories in a sitting. If you want to support old friends, you can obviously buy this book or buy it for a friend, but there's also lots of other ways you can support them through donations. They have a shop with their own merch, an Amazon wish list. You can sponsor a dog, or of course, if you're nearby, you can foster a dog, which I hope you will if you can, because there are so many adorable senior dogs there looking for a home. And again, that is Homecoming Tales, 15 inspiring stories from Old Friends Senior Dog Sanctuary. There are some books that I know are probably lovely, but I just, I'm such a softy and so, I get so sad about animals that I'm just like, uh -uh, <laughs> I'm just going to do myself the favor and like, I will buy this book for other people. I will donate <laughs> to whatever you want me to donate. Please don't make me read these books. 
<laughs> They're so cute, though. I I know, but I just I would just be like <laughs> like the whole time. I've been following yeah, this fair. this um coyote on the internet for like ten years. This rescue coyote, and the other day they sent an email saying that he had passed away, and like I cried oh, all day. No. My husband's like, "What's the matter with you?" I was like, "Charlie died." He's like, "Who's oh, Charlie?" No. I was like, "He's a coyote." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm too much of of a softy. Like, I, I, yeah, I'm I got not, that. I'm not strong at all. <laughs> you know, it's like here, take my money. Please don't make me think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so before I talk about my next pick, we are going to hear from another sponsor. Okay, so this one is just like a greatest hits book. It is the best of me by David Sedaris. And already I find this book hilarious because I can't believe he could whittle it down to, like, his favorite pieces. Because one of the things that I love about David Sedaris is that he unapologetically thinks that he is so entertaining. He thinks that he is hilarious. And, I mean, which he is. But, like, I just love how much he enjoys himself and his sense of humor, you know? And, and, like, he thinks everyone wants to know everything that he thinks. He's already published his diaries. You know, he's, like, in his 50s. He's already published his diaries. If you're unfamiliar with David Sedaris, he's been writing for almost 30 years now. He does humorous essays, um, but also very personal pieces. He started out on NPR. You might know the Santa's Elf piece that he did or recognize that he has a very distinct voice. He did the piece about where he worked as a as an elf when it sent his helpers uh, during Christmas time at Macy's one year, which is very funny. And that's in his collection, Holidays on Ice, which is like a sh- when I worked at the bookstore, we sold so many copies of that every year. It's like a graduation when they get all oh, the places you'll go. It's like, doesn't everyone have this book already? But apparently not. So you know his his other collections. There's Naked, Me Talk Pretty One Day, Barrel Fever, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, Calypso. I'm missing a couple, but um, he's just so hilarious, and his essays are very funny, also very awkward. And we hosted him one time when I worked at the store, and if it's possible, he's even funnier in person. And he tried out a piece for the first time. He read his Fitbit piece that ended up in Calypso to the audience. It was really great. And his favorite part about doing live events is he likes to do the signing line, he likes to have them be as long as they possibly can. He, like, settles in. He gets his drinks. He gets his dinner. And he just talks to everyone who comes up to get a book signed. And he asks them questions about what they do or, like, where they're from. And he really seems like he's interested. I mean, he seems to genuinely care about what these people are saying to him. He's so funny. So if you ever have a chance to see him in person, I would recommend it. Our signing line when I worked in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, went for six hours, and he was very disappointed because his signing line in Boston the night before went for eight hours. And I was like, but Boston is so much bigger than we are. Um, And he was just, like, pouting. It was hilarious. Uh, So there are a lot of David Sedaris fans out there. So this would be a perfect holiday present uh, for someone in your life who loves David Sedaris. Um, It's got a really cool cover, and there's a zillion pieces in here. And like I said, I'm pretty surprised that he didn't include every single thing he's ever written because he just thinks he's so funny, too, which I say he would love. Like, I I think it's amazing. You know, more people should think better about themselves, you know, and think that they are good at things, um, which I'm working on. I'm good at talking about books. I'm just going to say that out loud. So this is The Best of Me by David Sedaris. 
He came to speak in my city once, and I think I I just missed the actual event, but I came by the signing, and it was so surreal to actually see him in person. I was like, "You're a you're a real person." <laughs> It, it it doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah, he's funny. There's a really great clip of him. I think it's from the Craig Ferguson show where he's wearing $2,000 jeans or something that he bought when he was on tour in Japan. And he talks about like how much he loves these pants. It's just, <laughs> He's just weird. And I love it. It's funny. <laughs> All right, well, my next pick is a bit of a divergence from that. I don't know how to segue it in, but it's The Book Collectors, A Band of Syrian Rebels and the Stories that Carried Them Through a War by Delphine Menwi, translated by Lara Vernau. As you can probably guess, this is a book about the conflict in Syria, but it's told through the lens of the library at Daraya. Daraya is a town outside of Damascus where Syrian rebels held out for years against constant bombing by the Assad regimes. The author, Delphine Menwi, saw a photo online of a citizen-made library, and she reached out to the people who started it. She stayed in touch with them for years, from 2015 to about 2017, and this book tells the story of the library creation and its context. This is told in a series of articles that almost resemble reading a journal in the sense that we are learning things as Minwe does. There are sometimes long gaps between updates, whether because of technical issues, the internet is not always reliable, safety reasons, or even injuries or death. Minwe is from Istanbul, so she sees us at a distance, but not from the same distance as an American author might. She comes into this with expectations about the rebels, and I didn't always agree with her narration. She often asks about terrorism and doesn't completely trust the people that she is interviewing. So I was less interested in her commentary than in the stories that the residents of Daraya were sharing with her. This is a city that was under constant bombardment. 933 barrel bombs fell in a single month. The buildings were flattened, most of the residents fled, and those remaining live underground or in damaged buildings. In the wreckage, some of the subjects of this book come across a library and decide to rescue the books. Once they get started, the collection quickly grows. They salvage 6,000 books in one week, and a month later, they have 15,000 books. So, of course, once they've collected these books, they have to house them somewhere, so they start a library. Each book is numbered and cataloged, and they all have their owner's name written inside. The founders of the library want these books to be reunited with their owners once the war is over. The library quickly takes on its own life. Many of the people who visit have only really experienced propaganda in books. Even their college reading was carefully screened to support the Assad regimes. Many people discover the joy of reading for the first time, whether it's to gain knowledge or just escape the terror and monotony of war. Popular books included The Alchemist, books about democracy, and even medical textbooks were used to help rebels treat the wounded. People even continued their education through this library since they weren't able to go to school anymore. So they held lectures or workshops in the space to share what they had learned through their reading, some alternating between being on the front lines and spending time in the library. People learned English there, and occasionally it was transformed into a dance floor which allowed for a pocket of normalcy in their lives. The library aspect is definitely the reason I picked this book up. I mean, who can resist a book about books? 
But there is definitely a lot about the power of books and reading, but I ended up appreciating it most for learning more about Syria and the Civil War. I had heard generalities in the news, but following someone's everyday life in 2015 in Dariah is very different. It includes some Syrian history as context, but most of it is just Minwi's contacts telling her about what's been happening since the last time they were able to talk. It's hard for me to wrap my head around the devastation and constant abuses they endured including being fired on as peaceful protesters, chemical warfare, attacks at funerals, a massacre during Ramadan, and even napalm. One person relates a story of offering soldiers roses and bottles of water with a note attached reading, We are your brothers. Don't kill us. The nation is large enough for all of us. They even talk about waiting months and then more than a year for humanitarian aid, running out of food and then all supplies. When the first delivery came in 2016, it contained shampoo, mosquito nets, some medicine, and no food at all. So whether you're reading this for the book angle or for Syrian rebels telling their own story, I think it's well worth reading. The book ends in 2017, and the version I was reading didn't yet have the afterword, which I assume will fill in the time in between. I'm definitely curious about what updates that contains, so I'm going to try to pick up the finished version so I can see that. And again, that's The Book Collectors by Delphine Minoui, translated by Lara Verneau. Okay, my last pick is actually a book that I have not read. I did try out several books today, as we discussed. I always feel bad even saying that, but I want you to know that I've tried really hard for you. Um, I just, I couldn't endorse them. Uh, So this is one that I have not had a chance to read yet, but I have heard amazing things about. It is called Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko. And it is, the blurb says it is a gritty and darkly hilarious novel quaking with life that follows a queer First Nations Australian woman as she returns home to face her family and protect the land of her ancestors. I've heard nothing but amazing things about this. I hear it includes a talking crow. It includes a talking shark. That sounds really cool to me. I have also heard from many people that this is a very difficult read, that the subject matter is hard at times. So if um, you're sensitive to sexual assault and violence, uh, this is not a book that that you would want to pick up. But um, it is the winner of the prestigious Australian Award, uh, the Miles Franklin Award, and I am looking forward to reading it. So it is called Too Much Lip by Melissa Lukashenko. Yeah, that one sounds very interesting. I actually tried like the first few pages and I was like, wow, I'm not in the headspace for this. So I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, have to- I, I mean, that is the first thing that I hear everyone say is like, this is a very serious book. You know, it is, it is some difficult subject matter. Yeah. Maybe I'll come back to it when, uh, when the world is less, you know, how it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When the world is less world. <laughs> All right. Well, my last pick is The Liar's Guide to the Night Sky by Brianna R. Shrum. And this follows Hallie, who is at a ski lodge for a little family reunion. All of her cousins are there, most of whom she really likes, but her parents are very strict, so she is not close with them because they don't approve. In fact, two of her cousins are seen as bad influences. Even worse, their friend Jonah has come, who is definitely the bad boy of the bunch, starting fights, smoking pot, absolutely scandalous for a 20-year-old. 
Hallie is very responsible and is in fact studying to be an EMT and then a firefighter, but she decides to cut loose a little and sneak out with her cousins to hang out in the woods, maybe smoke some pot, and just get away from the overbearing adults. Just as she's starting to let herself flirt with Jonah, though, there is a massive mudslide. And running to escape it, they find themselves lost and stranded in the wilderness in the snow. After waiting for a rescue for a day or two, Hallie decides to go looking for help. One of their group is asthmatic and has already had a serious asthma attack. One is injured, and they are all cold and hungry and scared. Jonah decides that he will not let her do this alone, even though everyone thinks this is a really bad idea, and they set out together. And thus starts a survival story with a lot of sexual tension. Usually about half the books that I read for all the books are queer, but I was having difficulty finding any that I was clicking with this time, so I picked up this title on a whim. It felt like a fun, quick read. I've been watching Alone, which is a survival competition reality show, so that probably influenced my decision. And little did I know that this ended up being pretty queer itself. Both Hallie and Jonah are attracted to multiple genders. Hallie is bisexual, and Jonah is pansexual, aromantic, and polyamorous. And there are some other queer cousins as well. And it's also a diverse story in general. The whole family is Jewish. Two of the cousins are mixed race. Jonah is Afro-Latinx, and Hallie has anxiety. They end up discussing race, religion, and politics quite a bit, which I enjoyed. It feels completely silly to comment on the realism of teen dialogue as a 30-year-old, but I do teach high school, so maybe I can? My point is, it felt realistic to how teens actually interact with each other, especially family and close friends. They are constantly teasing each other good-naturedly, and they also talk about important things. They say ACAB, they talk about white apathy, and Hallie talks about her relationship to Judaism. Her parents aren't practicing, but she feels a deep connection to it as part of her identity. She talks about how her worldview is influenced by concepts in Judaism, even if she isn't always practicing. This is definitely a survival story. Jonah and Hallie wade through snow and look for water. They huddle together for warmth and caves. They MacGyver some fire starters, and they get chased by angry wildlife. And there's absolutely a will-they-won't-they plot between them, which of course intensifies when you're trying to share body heat to stay alive. But it's the everyday interactions between the characters that really brought this story to life for me. They make the kind of jokes that queer people actually make, like saying that astrology jokes make them seem gay, and then saying, well, I am pretty gay. Also, I appreciated reading a realistic YA novel about a physically strong woman main character. Hallie has been training to be a firefighter for years, so she has muscles. That's not something I see a lot in books. So if you're looking for a survival story with sexual tension and a sprinkling of politics, religion, and queer stuff, give this one a try. And that title again is The Liar's Guide to the Night Sky by Brianna R. Shrum. Okay, those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I have one pick for my work read, which is Brain-Changing Strategies to Trauma-Proof Our Schools by Maggie Klein, which is a neuroscience-backed approach to creating learning environments that are safe and productive for students that have been through trauma. And that one is actually also out today. 
but I didn't think I would uh, spend a lot of time talking about it because I don't know how many of you are teachers. And the other one that I'm very excited about is Plain Bad Heroines by Emily M. Danforth, which is going to be amazing. I loved her first one, so very excited. It's so amazing. That's what I've heard. <laughs> so amazing. My friend just read it, and um, wasps play a very big part in the mm-hmm. story. And now she texts me every time she sees a wasp. She's like, I swear I didn't used to see them, and now I'm seeing them everywhere. <laughs> Haunting her. It's like it's, they had a big budget for publicity. <laughs> They're like wasps. I, this is a total flex. I got the new Taylor Jenkins read, Ooh. which is called Malibu Rising, which was until recently called Malibu Burning, but they changed it to Malibu Rising. Uh, Taylor Jenkins read wrote uh, Jay-Z Jones and the Six, among other novels. And I also... Uh, I'm so excited about this one. I could just look at the cover and never read it, and it's like the most perfect book already. It is Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch by Rivka Galchin, and the cover is amazing. It's just purple with light purple font, and it has this little tiny yellow pentagram on it, and I cannot stop staring at it. <laughs> it's like magic. So I'm very excited about those. And that is it for today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink, who has been... Working overtime to fix all our mistakes because <laughs> all of our brains are not working. Like across all podcast channels, we were talking today on our work channel about how we've all had several mistakes that Jen and uh, our other editor, Dan, have to fix, and we appreciate them so much. Uh, you can drop us a line at all the books at Book Riot if you want to tell us about things. When you see a wasp, for instance. You can find us online. Danica hangs out on Twitter at Lesbrary. It's L-E-S-B-R-A-R-Y. I mostly hang out on Instagram at Friends and Comes Alive. And if you want to go to Apple Podcasts and give us a treat, you can leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books out today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.